As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0. OneOuter.com podcast and today very privileged to have a guy who's been I think I think he holds the record no he doesn't actually Alex Fitzgerald now uh, but this is the second uh, most appearances on the OneOuter.com podcast uh, mental game coach and author Jared Tendler how are you Jared I'm doing well Barry now now a little bit worse though now knowing Alex has the record yeah, well, he's kind of cheated. Uh, we're doing a regular podcast together. I mean, that was the only way he was going to get back on. Right, you know? right, right. So, he, okay, that, that makes sense. I feel a little better now. Yeah, yeah. But you're you're definitely out in second on your own. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> so, um, how are you anyway? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, the uh, the, the new book is out, and uh, I'm actually getting married next week, so it's been a busy, exciting, uh, exciting times. Nice. Well, congratulations uh, on that. Alex actually got married two weeks ago. Oh, did he really? Okay. Yeah. So there must funny, be some funny timing. You guys are competing for everything. I guess so. so. <laughs> and he's beating me in both. So he's beating you in both. Yeah. yeah. I, don't know, yeah. I don't know if I can handle that. I, I might have some hate losing tilt. You're better looking, Jared. I saw you. In, <laughs> I saw you in person at the World Series last year. Yeah, ex- you win that. <laughs> What? So, uh, yeah, I, I saw Jared last. That was the first time I was out for the World Series of Poker uh, last year. And we bumped into each other at the Quad Jacks booth uh, with Marco and stuff. Um, so how was that for you? Were you out there with, you know, clients, existing clients, or were you promoting the original mental game of poker there? Yeah, all of the above, actually. Um, you know, I, I've got uh, the, the good thing about being mobile. You know, most of my clients are overseas. I, I go out to Vegas. Um, I promote the book. I work with clients that are there. In the mornings, I work with clients that are overseas, so it's it's been and and then do some promotional stuff with Quad Jacks. I did, uh, you know, interviews with Poker News and Poker Listings and and other uh, re- and Poker Strategy and other other sites. So it's and it's just good for me to be there. I, I think it uh, it's always inspiring seeing everybody in person. You know, so so much of my year is speaking with people over the phone or over Skype, and it's just impersonal and sort of the nature of it. It works out well for me because I can basically live wherever I want. Although I uh, I've been living in one place for the last couple of years, uh, but being out there, getting to see everybody in person is just a lot of fun. So last year was actually the busiest uh, of the five World Series that I've been to. Uh, I had an incredible amount of clients that were both there and overseas who wanted sessions all at once. And uh, my fiance actually came out for four days. So it was uh, a very, very busy two and a half weeks. Uh, and then we got a chance to, to relax for a couple of days when she was in town and it was a great trip. I'm I'm going to be going out uh, again this year, the end of June, for a couple of weeks. Uh, although be, I'll be going out as a as a newlywed, so I'll, I'll have to behave myself a little bit more. All right. Okay. Well, I don't. You know. You know. She, she might let you away for a, a couple of hours or a couple of nights. <laughs> uh, you can you can go on a mental game orgy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're obviously going to talk about the new book, the appropriately named the Mental Game of Poker Two. How long did it take you and Barry to come up with the title? Uh, surprisingly, not very long. <laughs> uh, we, we, I was... we definitely tossed around a couple other options, but when it came back to it, we were just looked at each other like we were idiots for even thinking about anything else. 
<laughs> I thought maybe uh, the, the difficult second album, you know, how people. <laughs> but I, I think it's a great name because in terms of it keeps also your your brand, like the mental game of poker now is pretty much considered by everyone to be the sort of go-to book for the mental game with poker. I mean, I, I think you've sort of, uh, I'm not even sure of the, I think there was like a few other ones previously, but I think it just seems to, it's the one that's on everybody's lips just now. I'm not just saying that, you know, because yeah. you've been on the podcast a few times and stuff. Just when it, even people I speak to at the local casino and mm-hmm. stuff, everyone seems to be aware of the book. So that's cool. I suppose a lot of it was to, to keep that, I mean, the mental game of poker too, it's obvious it's you and Barry again, and it's going to be, you know, for people that like the first one, they can they can grab a copy of this one. Yeah, and, and, and honestly, just from a content perspective too, it's it's a, it, to, to me and to us, it was a continuation of basically the things that we were talking about in the first book. Uh, and, you know, the first book was really about tilt and fear issues and confidence issues, really the problems in a player's mental game, whereas the new book is all about taking their game to another level. So things like the zone, decision-making focus. Um, I realize we'll get much more into detail about those things, but but just the overall idea in my head was that it was it was sort of just like one long story. Here you just sort of get rid of all the crap. Once you've graduated from that, the next logical thing would be to see how much better you can get. And that's where the second book comes in. And, and for me, it was sort of always, the, the, the framework uh, for both books was there from the beginning of writing the first one. Uh, the first one just got to be so long and so sent it kind of dense that mm-hmm. we just sort of just stopped writing it because it was just gonna it was gonna be too much. And frankly, it would have been lost. I think had the the two books been combined, um, I, I'm not sure that it would have been quite as impactful um, because it's just too much. Like it's one of the things I talk about is you can't learn too many things at once. If if I did actually too much with the book, I think I might have uh, let you know kind of led people astray with that. And frankly. I actually needed a couple more years to really understand that second level, just like it took me a couple of years to really understand the first. Yeah, well, I was going to say, um, obviously, you know, I got a copy of the first book and read through that. And we also did a, a previous one of the times Jared was on. We did like a sort of session between me and some of like my mental issues. And within a few months uh, later, I just felt a different sort of definite change in my mindset. And, uh, you know, obviously, again, variance plays a huge part, but I, I got like my biggest score in an online tournament a few months after it. And um, I was like, you know, I definitely, as I say, variance plays a role, but I, would, yeah. I was really aware when I was deep in that tournament of thinking about things that you talked with me uh, on the previous podcast, you know, about how to deal with yourself when you're deep in these tournaments. And also a lot of the sort of concepts I picked up from the first book. And I was going to say that to you about, one of the concepts from the first book, I can't remember the name, I think you get, you give a name to it, but it's that you, your brain physically can't take in everything at once. It's an ongoing process of the inchworm, wasn't it? The inchworm, you yeah. Sort of, you sort of learn a little bit, move on, you think you're further ahead, and then you sort of go back a little bit again to then relearn certain parts and then move on. But all along, you're sort of like inching along forward. Um, so I, I suppose that makes sense in, in breaking it down into two books. Yeah, and and uh, obviously it's great to hear that you know the things that we talked about really helped you in those spots, and also that you were aware of what was helping. I mean, it's it's one thing to sort of have that success; it's another thing to know what was working, just in general. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, I mean, to me, the the progress with your mental game 
you know, if I if, if no one has read the first book, you don't necessarily need to read it if you don't have any major mental game issues, because it's not a an essential sort of thing for in my there's not not everybody has big tilt issues. In fact, some people who mm-hmm. have even more subtle tilt issues that might actually be caused by some errors in their approach to learning or some high expectations that they have can be aided in in the second book. So even though the second book doesn't talk about tilt, there are sometimes frustrations that get created from uh, failures in understanding the real learning process. Uh, and that's a big part of uh, of the second book is really understanding what the learning process looks like. You know, you talked about inching along, you know, when you're when you're sort of moving uh, and making progress, progress is messy. When you're in a very difficult situation, uh, it may, you know, progress may look like uh, just having more awareness of something. You're not even able to control it yet. You're not even able to make improvements yet. You're just more aware that it's happening. Um, you know, when you're when you're feeling good or in, in an easier spot, you're running well. Progress is going to look different because it's an easier situation. Um, so, you know, kind of really being able to, to distinguish kind of the roadmap of how to make progress and how to do that sustainably. So it's not just a temporary progress, but one that's actually going to be long lasting. You know, that's a, it's a complex process, but not one that's impossible to understand. And, and the second chapter or the third chapter uh, is really devoted to making that process as simple as possible. Yeah. So I would maybe like a sort of nice question then would be for people that have got the first book then or people that even don't have the first book, maybe. Would you say that they're they're equally sort of independent of each other or would you say definitely read the first one first before you, you know, you sort of touch to I would say definitely read the first book first if you have a, a distinct tilt problem, uh, you know, fear or big risk aversion issue, uh, or a big confidence issue where you know you're mm-hmm. running well and and your confidence is soaring, you're running poorly, your confidence is in the crapper. You know, if if those if those issues are big problems for you, then read the first book. Uh, yeah. Because your ability to capitalize on the things that are talked about in the second book are going to be severely impacted by those problems. Those problems are going to hold you back. But if they're not there or they're pretty small and fairly manageable, then the second book you can just start with. And a lot of times I, mean, I can definitely foresee there will be people who uh, work with the second book first, make a lot of progress, and then start to see very subtle tilt, fear, motivation and confidence issues begin to pop up. And they'll go back to the second uh, go back to the first book uh, to help kind of mediate some of those so, some of the smaller issues for them. Yeah, well, from a personal point of view, again, which I think's maybe the best way to relate, because a lot of my listeners, even when I check back stats for like previous podcasts, um, when you see Jared Tendler Part One, as it's called, you know, like on my stats thing, the numbers that I've downloaded it, they're it's like always the same as the second one. It's like nobody listens to the first part hmm. without then going listening to the second interview I did with you, because you then, you know, you then tech you talked me through like what my issues were and stuff like that. Right. And my my one was that of fear and confidence. When I was getting deep, I had it in my head. I mean, it, it's kind of strange. I almost feel like a sort of like a recovering something, you know, <laughs> tiltaholic or whatever. Yeah. Um, I sort of thought I was almost jinxed or cursed or, you know, just felt doomed or whatever. And you sort of talked me through more like understanding variance and the book helped in terms of, you know, are you really doing all you can do from a personal point of view in terms of studying and stuff like that? And even with, you know, you sent me a copy of the second book and even the parts that I've been reading through, I'm up to page 114, I've got it marked here. That's about decision making. Yep. And um, 
even the stuff that I've been reading through up to now, a lot of it makes sense to me now because of what I learned from the first book and what I learned from my session with you. Whereas I think me back then reading that now wouldn't really get some of it, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it was just like sort of, um, it's almost sort of looking at things with hindsight, isn't it? Like, oh, if, you know, you'd known that then, but then at the time you didn't know any of that sort of stuff anyway. So I would I would definitely recommend people to, to at least start with the first book and then, you know, and then get the second one. And I think Amazon were maybe doing deals on both of them when I checked it out. They the are, other day. yeah. Yeah, and they and yeah. they kind of keep changing and yeah. Yeah, and also we're going to be doing a giveaway to someone that we we'll talk about later. So um, a, a big concept that I sort of seem to take from the book, and it's on the front page, is uh, the mental game of poker two, proven strategies for improving poker skill, increasing mental endurance, and playing in the zone consistently. Now it seems to be this concept of the zone. Uh, which everybody's aware of and I think everybody that plays poker or even some sports um, is is aware of this and again without sounding sort of new agey and fuddy-duddy or whatever it just seems to be like something you can't put your finger on but you know what it sort of feels like when it's happening to you so what's this the zone that you're talking about and what's your take on it? Well, the zone is, practically speaking, just the peak of your mental performance. When you are at your best mentally, it's called the zone. And, you know, it's, sometimes people call it being in the flow uh, or experiencing sort of that, um, that, 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 that like flow experience. Uh, there's a famous book by the guy who kind of studied it most called Flow. And he's actually cited in this book uh, because some of the, my uh, theories have kind of emerged from, from what he's talked about. But basically, you know, the zone is that space where you just uh, your decisions come very easily. You're making some very high level decisions that you're not even sure why it's right. You just you just have this strong knowledge that it is it is right. You're just totally engrossed in the action. Uh, there's a sense of timelessness. Uh, you don't even you know, time can can either either fly by for some people or it just goes by so slowly. But in, in going slowly it's just a very kind of comfort enjoy enjoyable space it's like it's almost like you're in you're in heaven in a sense uh but yeah i mean that's what i was it's it's so strange um in terms of i mean i'm a lot more you know statistically minded logical and stuff like that but when something's like that i can see the the sort of the neuroscience if you like and i think it was it was malcolm gladwell that wrote the flow wasn't it no it was uh, a guy named um mahai shikset mahai Oh, right. Well, Malcolm Gladwell's talked about it in certainly some of his work and stuff as well. And um, definitely when you speak about that, it's like even when I've played, you know, indoor football before, there are some times you just sort of know when you're you're playing well, you're scoring the goals, things are happening. And like you say, it's almost when I was playing in some tournaments in, in Vegas last year, I did, you know, really well and a few final tables from, you know, a few hundred people. And it's almost like you say that feeling of, uh, no time or that it's like normally if you're sitting in a tournament and you're not really playing great or whatever you're very aware of it's dragging the time uh things like that some things annoy you at the table and stuff but when you're in that you know the zone as, as you put it and as lots of people you know talk about it you sort of just like you say very zen just ticking over and things i don't know things seem really strange to me when i've experienced it almost like uh a little bit like deja vu or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what the neuroscience of it is, but just feel very, I don't know, centered, just lots of new agey talk, I think. 
Yeah, and and for me, I'm I'm like you as well. I want strategy. I want logic. I want understanding. And mm-hmm. I, believe me, I'm not saying that I understand every aspect of the zone. But I think the big discovery for me, and what's talked about in the book, is that, uh, you know, it's the why. Like, why is it that when you're in that in that sort of mental space, you're able to make decisions that you don't even know why is right, and yet they turn out to be correct? Why Why does that happen? And the reason mm-hmm. it happens is because we have an unconscious ability to gather data. Now, this, this is happening on many levels. Now, if you were to, to suddenly pay attention to your, how your ass felt in your chair, you would realize mm-hmm. that there has been data being collected about the sensation of your, of your, of your butt up against your chair. It wasn't, I'm doing it now. You're doing it now, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. But you weren't aware of it until I just directed your attention. So, so the, the body is, is constantly taking in um, information through all of our senses at a, at a, at a very high rate, and it's all unconscious until you start to pay attention to it. Now, the other thing that's happening is in, in poker, you take those senses and it turns into data collection. And there's research that shows this, and I talk about it. It's, uh, it's called the Iowa Gambling Task. And basically, the Iowa Gambling Task showed that there's unconscious data collection happening. So, so if, we, if we're trying to figure out, like, wh- how are you able to make these very high-level decisions based on information that you consciously don't know, it's because of what the Iowa Gambling Study shows. It shows that there's unconscious data that you are using, uh, but without even being aware of it. Yeah, it's, it's, so is, is that terms of, I know you're from a sort of golf background and you've coached a lot of golfers and stuff on their mental game. And I was watching the World Snooker Championships have just finished in the UK here. Um, when these snooker players and golfers are playing, that's essentially what they're doing, isn't it? At a very, you know, the highest level. Even subconsciously, their body and mind or whatever's working in harmony and taking into account even things. I saw this guy. It was completely amazing. He was talking about that golfers and that on some level when they're taking swings, subconsciously, they're taking into account the slightest bits of breeze, the way things are. As you say, everything, like it almost like a sort of, uh, you know, these films like The Matrix when they look at something and compute every aspect. Is that essentially what's going on sometimes? It is. It is. And, and, and the thing is, it's always relative. Um, mm-hmm. And for those players, it's because their mind is operating at a very, very high level that they are able to absorb those unconscious details. And, and I've experienced the zone uh, while being on the golf course uh, many times. Some, yeah. uh, only a handful of times have I been able to do it for most of the round. Um, <laughs> and I actually talk about uh, a couple of those in, in the introduction. Yeah. Uh, but for me, like if I'm on if I'm on the putting green, it's just it's it, like the line, like the, the my read, knowing how the how the putt is going to break, it just becomes cl- crystal clear. I can actually see the line, and and my ability to sort of stay in that line uh, through the entire shot uh, comes very naturally and easily too. There have been times where I've been close to the zone, where I've been able to see the line perfectly, but then my mm. mind was kind of almost too excited <laughs> because yeah. I knew <laughs> before that. Uh, when, when I was able to see the line like that, the putt went in. And so, you know, in, in that instance, I was close to the zone, but not actually in it. And that was one way for me to distinguish it. You know, we talk about another way of, of being able to, to, to make the zone more practical, more understandable and more strategic, understand what the zone is like for you and understand what it's, what it's not like, understand when you're, when you're not in the zone, what are some of the things that emerge as problems, even if very subtle problems. 
the, the more you understand the details and the characteristics of what it's like for you to play in the zone and, and the things that cause you to fall out of it, the easier it is to get into it more consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember now without going back and listening to it myself, you know, the, the podcast we did previously, but we touched on things. I think we did touch on it together about putting yourself in this sort of mental state, you know, this peak mental state. And there's a lot of other um, guys, you know, coaching from different backgrounds and stuff. They sort of look at this anchoring, you know, whether it's a certain object or some people have, you know, some wristband on or something that they do that sort of takes them into that thing. Now, in terms of playing in the zone consistently and putting yourself in that state, are there ways, is it sort of like, um, you know, when people say if you if you look at someone, you can tell if they're depressed just by looking at them because their their shoulders are slumped mm-hmm. and their heads down and they're speaking very you know low and mumbling and stuff like that. Whereas is it because they're depressed that's making them do that, or is it because they're doing that that's making them depressed? And they say if you just change your physiology and sit up in your chair and look ahead, etc., you can instantly feel better. Is that sort of relevant to playing in the zone? There are certain physiological things you can do um to make you play in the zone um to a certain degree i agree with parts of that but to a large degree i don't and and so the physiology and sort of like you said correcting posture Mm -hmm. if you already understand the underlying reasons for why you have fallen out of the zone the problems that emerge you have a strategy for correcting those things then correcting your posture may be one aspect of what helps you to make those corrections so you can climb your way back up into the zone. But Mm -hmm. on its own, I think if you're using your physiology or you're using anchoring as a way to get into the zone, uh, basically you're trying to hit the same target, meaning that the zone is not something uh, that is, for those people, they view the zone as being uh, like a static thing. It doesn't change. You're, You're aiming at the same peak. You're aiming at the same target. And I don't believe that, you know, mm-hmm. I, my, my program, the way that I, I see things is that the zone is continuing to evolve. If, if nothing else, the tactics by that, that you play when you're in that state of mind have to keep changing. If they don't, you're actually getting worse as a player relative to the field. Mm-hmm. So both from a mental perspective and a, and a tactical perspective, the quality of the zone continues to evolve, meaning that from a, from a mental side, you can feel even more calm. You can feel even more timeless. You can be even more focused. So everything that's there, the there can be an increase in quality of it. And so the zone is a much more dynamic, ever-evolving, ever-growing kind of thing. And so if that is true, then using uh, a physiological uh, you know, uh, change, like your posture, or using anchoring as a tool to, to sort of kick you into the zone, you know, they can do that for, uh, um, at times. Uh, if it's been well trained, but over time, I believe that you're actually going to minimize how good of a player you can actually be, and how uh, how um, uh, how high of a peak you can actually reach mentally, because the anchoring is attached to a specific skill set and mental state, both of which are not are, are, are sort of assumed to be not changing, but that's not true at all. The mental game mm-hmm. and your tactics have to keep evolving. So instead of anchoring. You can have many things that make up a routine that part of it is to make your routine not routine, meaning that it's something that continues to evolve and grow. There may be components to it that are that are the same all the time, but there always have to be things that are unique to it 
to sort of help encourage the zone or your or your peak mental state to continue to grow yeah and what i would say is maybe just from even we've just discussed there uh you know indoor football poker golf and i would say even like maybe chatting up girls back in the day sure (laughs) um there's that same feeling of sort of being very you know in as you say in the zone on the ball and that so because they're all different you know playing poker is completely uh different in terms of the activity and the movements to football but a lot of the similar things like confidence etc so I would say then the next question would be in terms of the zone, how how part I saw how big a part does confidence play then? It's just confidence in your ability. It's it's essential. Uh, and mostly yeah. because of the emotion that's attached to that confidence. You know, confidence mm-hmm. is first and foremost an emotion and people don't always realize that. So if your confidence is too high, your emotion can be too high and you'll actually minimize the amount of data collection, that unconscious data collection that can happen. So people who are who are overconfident, you see this all the time in extreme ways. They're often the ones who are the first to ignore advice from good players. They're often the people who think they don't need to focus because they're just going to run over the table. And so, of course, they're they're losing valuable data that ultimately feeds the zone. If you have too much confidence, you will not play in the zone. You may think you are, but you're actually in this like overconfident delusional bubble, <laughs> which is not yeah. which is not the zone. And on the flip side, if your confidence is too low, then you will not have enough energy to actually get into the zone and be thinking on a high enough level. And frankly, actually, if your if your confidence is too low, you can get into the zone, but you're not going to stay there very long because you're almost going to be shocked and surprised at how good you can be playing. You know, somebody who has low confidence is going to be surprised that they could actually be playing that well. And, and that that awareness um, can be can be fixed by having your confidence be accurate. It's almost like growing a wider base to support that zone. You know, if your base is too small, if your confidence is too small, and your play is so big and so broad, uh, it's almost like uh, having a pyramid upside down. You know, it's not not very stable. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, like again, going back to you know your previous book and how it relates to the second one, you speak about confidence in terms of the proper foundations that you have, like you're saying, sort of pyramid analogy, you need to studying, you need to be putting in the work away from the table, etc., which will then increase your confidence when you're actually playing. Exactly. And and, and especially yeah. in poker, a big thing for, for poker players is being able to recognize their skill. You know, mm-hmm. if you're basing your confidence primarily on results, uh, especially in the short term, that opinion is going to be very biased and sometimes just mm-hmm. flat out crazy. I mean, variance is nuts. Variance is, is insane. And if you, let, yeah. if you let your confidence be attached to those results, then it's going to drive you insane. And so mm-hmm. your confidence is much more stable when you do the work that you just talked about and also have an understanding of your skill so that you can measure and know how you played after a session. Now, I realize that's a tough thing to do and maybe an impossible thing to do, uh, you know, 100%. But if you know that there's a, a handful of mistakes that you tend to make when you're playing your C game and you play a session and when you're playing at your worst in that session and you make none of those mistakes, then you know that you played pretty well relative to your range, you know, and we'll mm-hmm. call it like a solid B game. So that's a way of measuring your skill that gives you validation that you played pretty well, even if you ended up losing on that session. Yeah, yeah. 
What about people then that, you know, they're not aware of their mental game, okay? They're just the average grinder, or maybe they even play for a living, and they jump into a tournament, and one day or whatever, they get this feeling of the zone that we've talked about, and let's say it's not just the deck, you know, hitting them in the face sort of thing. Can people, what, what about people that sort of like, I don't know how to word it, but other than accidentally, you know, fall into playing in the zone, they're registered in a tournament, they're playing, they're feeling okay and stuff. And before they know it, they've got that feeling of just, they are they know what they're doing, they know what bet to make, they know when to fold, and they end up taking the tournament down. How, how do you sort of account for that? I mean, there's a lot of things that happen randomly, and it's it's not like I mean they're they're out there trying to play their best, yeah. So their motivation is to be at a high level, and mm-hmm. the the zone is something that happens to a lot of people without them knowing it. Just like tilt has happened to a lot of people without them understanding why, mm-hmm. you know. And so what I've tried to do in the books is to break them down so that you can understand more of the predictability around it. So it's truly not random. It just appears to be random. You know, once you kind of understand the pattern and the nuances of how sleep and diet and energy levels and your learning and, you know, warming up and uh, the the work you've been doing off the table, how all of these kind of feed into your confidence and your focus and your decision making and your energy levels uh, and your mm-hmm. rate of learning and the, you know, sort of the the, the amount of mental space that you have, the amount of uh, uh, how, how fresh you feel and kind of ready to be at a high level, how motivated you are, how, how narrow your goals are. Like all these mm-hmm. factors are like a kind of like, uh, you know, putting together a big mixture into a, into a soup. I mean, or putting together a lot of ingredients into a soup, you know, y- you're just trying to kind of balance all of these factors and it takes a while to really understand the predictable nature of them, but you just got to pay attention. You know, if you have a session where you play in the zone, just ask yourself some questions afterwards, like what was different today? And, you know, maybe it was, you, you know, you felt a little bit more motivated because you were thinking about your goals or, you know, you had a tough stretch and you really felt like you were trying to uh, break out of it or you'd gotten some good sleep. You know, you had a conversation with a friend and something that he said, you know, really clicked into place and kind of helped you. And that was like the one thing that you kind of carried you through. Just start to understand and, and, and look out uh, what is contributing to that uh, high-level play to that zone yeah. uh, because it's not random, even though it may appear that way. Yeah, for me, it was like I, I would always play better once I'd washed up the dishes and maybe tidied the house a little bit because <laughs> it was like, right, that's that done. Now I can play. Yeah. Whereas if the place was a mess and I just jump on and log on, it's sort of like, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you just you had things hanging over your head. Your mind, yeah. your mind wasn't quite as free. Yeah, just when you were talking there about the zone, I just thought of something just this minute. Um, in terms of playing in the zone, okay, and the effect of confidence and, as you say, feeling good and sort of, you know, belief in your ability, how much do you think of it maybe live is even sort of like more in terms of other humans will pick up, you know, confidence just through your demeanor and body language, etc., which they aren't going to see online? Um, is that is that an issue in terms of playing in the zone? In terms of, you know, if they if guys are sitting at the table with you, your demeanor is you know very confident, very dominant when you're playing. Uh, you're feeling good about your game, and you're you know you're winning a few pots, etc. Do you think it's perhaps sort of more like live in terms of of, of that sort of area? 
You mean people being able to, like, like the consequences of playing in the zone? That that how people are going to be seeing that you're playing well? Is that? Yeah, and, and just sort of in that, in that that perpetuates even more, you know, confidence that they're picking up. You know, certain people at the table, you know, are, are sort of like reading your body language, even subconsciously themselves, as that you're very much on your game. Right, and then Whereas, you're, and then you're sensing what they're sensing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like a rapport sort of thing. Sure. Well, that that definitely can be confirming, and especially taking down a few pots. You know, making a few good reads. You know, one of the stories I talk about is from uh, Danny Steinberg at the World Series of Poker Europe final table a couple of years ago. And and what's not included in that story is a, uh, that he had been playing very well against Victor Blom uh, prior to that uh, final table. And he had made some some for him some pretty amazing reads. Um, he had played against Victor f- for him very, very well. And, and he had been building confidence prior to that that instilled even more. And then when he got to the final table, it was, you know, things were kind of really clicking and he was really in the zone. So, so, so sometimes that, um, that, that confirmation, that validation from other people at the table, from hands that you play from just, you know, some, uh, good pots that end up, uh, going your way. Um, it is confirming, it is building. The thing is not only can it lead to the zone, but it also can lead to you take to, to taking you out of the zone. If you become too aware of it, if it builds your confidence too much, as I said earlier. Yeah, you can maybe perhaps sort of start to like question it or second guess it or something. Yeah, or just or just assume that you're kind of running over the table and that you're, you know, becoming like, ah, like, too, like too, yeah, cocky. too cocky. And then as soon as that happens, you basically shut off that unconscious data collection, which is essentially feeding the zone. If you don't have that, uh, you can't continue to be in the zone, although it may feel like you are because of that overconfidence. You're actually not, and you're actually beginning to play worse. Yeah, I mean, because if if you think about it, and, and I, I, I want to just point this out, that it makes zero logical sense to pay attention to those unconscious details if, in your own mind, your overconfidence is basically saying, "Well, I'm going to just run over the table. There's, I, I can do no wrong. You know, I'm yeah. I'm going to just crush the table." Like if you're making those assumptions. You're making assumptions about the future. You're basically telling your mind, you know, stop working. I got this. You know, it's it's in the bag. It doesn't matter <laughs> what I do anymore. So it makes perfect logical sense that your brain would do that and stop collecting that data because, you know, you're trying to allocate resources. The brain is very efficient. You make that kind of intent, it, it shuts off, and, you know, you will start to slide. Well, you you made a good point there. I actually know a few players uh, personally that say to me some, when they're away to play live, oh, I'm just going to go in and just run over the table, just three, four bet this guy, that, you know. And they've got that mindset and game plan before they've even sat down knowing who's going to be at their table, you know. <laughs> and, and, so and, and how do they do? Yeah, as you say, sometimes they're fooled by randomness. You know, sometimes yep. they will take down the tournament, but a lot of the times they'll be out before the break. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like... Yeah, it's fascinating. So um, it's hard. I hate doing this, especially, you know, but there is a sort of a lot of comparisons with the golf and poker. And, yeah. you know, everyone would talk about Tiger Woods um, as being sort of the guy that I remember even when I was way back at high school, when he was first coming onto the scene and stuff, everyone was very aware that he was seeking out uh, mental game coaching and really looking at his mental game. And he seemed to be, you know, like a cyborg or a terminator. And all the commentators made that sort of, comparison and 
everybody compares, you know, Phil Ivey as the Tiger Woods of poker and stuff like this. So someone like Phil Ivey, he is an example of someone that is playing in the zone a large percent, you know, higher than anyone else pretty much, you know, in the game today. How likely is it to sort of say to yourself, you're going to play in the zone, you know, more than X amount of time sort of thing in terms of, is it a realistic goal to consistently play in the zone? Or can you just put yourself in the best chance of being in the zone? No, it's definitely a realistic goal, uh, but you can't just say that you're going to do it. You've got to put the work in, just like you got to put mm-hmm. the work in to get better as a player tactically, and just like you got to put the work in to actually solve tilt problems or other mental game problems. You know, the, the thing that I've done in the book is really lay out uh, the how to do it, but I didn't actually, you know, do all the work for you or for for the listeners. It's it's a roadmap. It's a tool. It's a it's a resource. It's not uh, full of answers. It's full of uh, description for how you find your own answers and put your own work. And frankly, I think that's that's what poker players should want, because you know poker is such an, an egalitarian place. It's like the people who put the work in, who who uh, are, are often rewarded. And of course, yes, there are uh, players who kind of luck box their way into to big tournament scores, and there. are uh, you know, other players who have, uh, you know, incredible, uh, you know, intelligence. And, and of course, they're able to play high, at at, uh, at very high levels. But for the most part, you you do get what you put into it. Uh, yeah. And and, you know, it's it's the same with 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 this book. And that's and that's I mean, it's certainly the same in the second book. Uh, the first book, one of the things I've heard the most of and frankly, is the most gratifying for me is that that the people who really worked at it, not the ones who just sort of read it and assumed that it was going to fix them. The ones who really worked at it saw the biggest improvement. And that, to me, is the most rewarding because they deserve it. They've done the work. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not these power bands that you were buying at the World Series uh, Hall uh, last year that instantly uh, changed your game. <laughs> Remember, the, there was these bands for sale. Yeah, I've, I've uh, you seen them every year. You put them on and you, your game's like, you know, to, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's like... Um, so what you were saying there is about working at I, I picked up the, uh, I think Audible were doing a promotion or something. I actually yep. got the Mental Game of Poker uh, as an audio uh, book. Um, and that, that was great. I, I listened to that, you know, regularly and seemed to take it in that way. You know, having read the book, it's sort of like, it's so easy to take things in. And, and again, even reading the second book, it's reminded me of things that I thought I had down but realizing that mm, maybe subconsciously, but not consciously, because I just totally forgot, yeah. you know, about certain aspects. So um, if you look at someone in terms of like going back to like playing in the zone consistently, as I said, there was no one that sort of played more in that zone and just so above everyone else. It's like Tiger Woods and golf. Then, you know, obviously his personal problems and injury and whatever else, you know, playing around with his swing and stuff. Yep. He's, look at him like today, and obviously, I mean, I think he's back up to number two in the world, and nobody's doubting that he's still, you know, one of the greatest golfers, if not the greatest golfer ever. But there seems to have been a lot of damage to his mental game in terms of when people watch him play and certain aspects, they just think like, you know, the old Tiger or whatever wouldn't that wouldn't have happened to him. You know, he would have dragged himself through, you know, and and won that tournament, etc. Someone that has their mental game down as much as Tiger Woods and they have, whether it's outside influences or whatever in their personal life, and it shocks them that much. Um, how hard is it then to build back to that sort of, you know, that standard when you've had, you know, you're carrying quite a lot of mental baggage and 
I mean, obviously, maybe doubt's even bigger in someone's mind like that that was so above everyone else, and now is like, you know, is uh, he's really trying to work hard to get back. I, I would be surprised if Tiger ever really had doubts that he would get back, but I do think that his overconfidence uh, or his uh, like uh, maybe defiance is a better word, defiance of his weaknesses uh, slowed down his progress. I think one of the the issues that he's had is just really accepting some of the uh, the weaknesses that he has. Um, now, I think he's done a, tr- a tremendous job working through them as far as what I can tell. Uh, but, you know, a lot of a lot of Tiger's mental game problems, I think, were also kind of overblown relative to his tactical problems, his his golf swing. You know, he at the same time that he was going through all those personal issues, and there's no doubt that the personal issues had uh, a dramatic effect on him, um, you know, to the point where I actually saw him quit in a golf tournament, which I had never seen before. He shot 82 in a an event back in 2009, which or 2010, which mm-hmm. he'd never done in his life. He'd never quit a round, and he just, I think he sculled one out of, out of a bunker and into the water. It was just, you could tell he wasn't, he was he was mentally checked out. Um, yeah. But aside from that, you know, he he went through a, an entire swing change, and the swing change that he made uh, was pretty dramatic. Uh, the, the the changes don't look it necessarily if you compare his swing, uh, but I, I through my conversations with Dusty, um, I, I know kind of what he's been trying to do with his golf swing, and it's, it's, it's dramatic. So when he talked about his swing changes back in 2004, he said it took him about two years for them to become unconsciously competent in the sense where he could go out in a major and just pull the trigger without having to think about pieces of his golf swing. Yeah. He's, he's sort of just about at that two-year mark now. So you know, a lot of those mental issues that he experienced come as a byproduct of just not having confidence in your golf swing. Because you, he just didn't have that much skill with it yet. There were still a lot of moving parts to it. And so I think a lot of what looked like mental game issues were really you know, frustrations and struggles with a golf swing that wasn't quite as, as solidified. And, and maybe relating that sort of to poker, it's maybe guys that are, they've ran well, they've, they've played good, they've worked on their game, and you know, they have studied, and they've got to a level and they're earning, and then everyone else starts getting good and better. Because they're at that level, they sort of maybe start not studying as much and stuff, and then everyone catches up with them, and then they start to refuse. Oh, it must be variance because you know, and they they're not doing the things they originally did to get there, sort of yep. thing. That's correct, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And that yeah. that overconfidence is a, is a big problem. And it, you know, I've read I've read people say it. I've I've read people write it on forums. I've seen it in books. Overconfidence is a major problem. It's not something to be dis- to, to to be discounted as you know not a problem. It is a problem, and that's mm-hmm. a perfect example of it. I mean, you just look. All you have to do is look at uh, some of the players who were dominating the game back in 2008, 2009. The numbers of them that are still around are are very few. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So it's an ongoing thing. That was one of my questions. Going to be, do you ever sort of conquer? the mental game or is it just an ongoing lifelong process i think you conquer pieces of it you know there uh-huh. are components to you know a certain level of tilt control that you can conquer but that doesn't mean that your job is done you know your job may yeah. switch because tilt is no longer a big problem and so you now are working on your decision making but then after your decision making gets conquered to a certain level you know then you go and work on your mental endurance so you can do both of those longer so you know it, to me the the mental game is an ongoing thing because there's always weakness and there's always areas to improve just like your mm-hmm. tactical game so sure you can stop working you can you know be 
you can enjoy the amount of, of, of success and progress that you've had. But if you're going to continue to play poker, uh, then, you, then you, you damn well better be ready to continue to move down in stakes as the players that are equal or, or just slightly behind you uh, catch up and overtake you. Yeah. So adapt or die really is the message. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I put out on Twitter um, if anybody had any questions and stuff. And I got a couple and a couple of guys emailed me. And I've picked two here that I thought were quite good. And they sort of covered a few other people's questions as well. Okay. So uh, a guy called Clark uh, emailed in and he said, um, in terms of the mental game, is it different for... Let me see. What it's different for amateur players versus pro players in terms of what they should be focusing on. That's a good question. I mean, I, I think the hmm. you know I don't work with a lot of amateur players, so I, I don't want to sort of speak from a position of ignorance uh, in mm-hmm. terms of what they need. But I, I mean, I, I would have to imagine that uh, the issues uh, would be the same. Um, the level of significance for them may change. So, so amateur players may experience uh, slightly less intense tilt, but if it's sort of relative to their game is, is a problem, then you want to deal with that. Um, mm-hmm. Amateur players may also struggle with kind of out-leveling themselves or out-leveling their learning where you know, they may have a, a limited amount of time to play and to study, uh, but want to be doing more. Um, and so they may at times sort of try to force the, force the issue uh, with their learning or force the action uh, because of, of some impatience. Uh, so, you know, really kind of accepting the amount of time that you have um, and trying to get the most out of it rather than kind of fighting up against that reality. Uh, but, you know, and, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm a, you know, I haven't spoken with, with a lot of, of yeah. amateur poker players, so I, I don't want to over, overreach my advice here. Yeah, I, I would say from even a personal point of view in terms of that, and you you can obviously correct me on that, Jared, for, you know, but just from what I've learned from your books and stuff, you know, if I was sort of answering that question, yeah. some, I would say maybe maybe amateur players should look a lot at the uh, confidence and also tilt issues because they're going to be playing less, so they're probably more likely to have, you know, short-term, you know, anything can happen in terms of variance. Mm. They can go a few tournaments and... A lot of amateur players will probably be playing live as well, so it's going to be a lot harder to, you know, as you say, get the games in for for any edge they have to sort of come out. Um, and maybe for like the um, professional players, would probably be when you're in mental game of poker too. You're talking about, you know, the aspects of grinding and endurance and like multi-tabling and things like that, right. and just sort of keeping your worth work ethic up. Uh, I'd probably say that's more ap- appropriate for like professional semi-professional players and maybe amateur like weekend warriors just even if they read the things on the inchworm and you know as you say studied when they can read bits out magazines uh yep. listen to a podcast or whatever and and then sort of maybe deal with read into variants and uh, just sort of like accepting that and maybe getting a handle on that probably give them an edge on a lot of players that they would be you know playing with in like a, a weekend tournament yeah that that makes a lot of sense and it actually something just came to mind that um you know the, the the interesting thing about the mental game is that generally the things that are issues in poker uh often exist elsewhere in in that person's life so you know with their full-time job or with their relationships or driving you know wherever mental game issues may pop up if you can be working on your mental game in other areas and you can see some improvement, then that's going to make it easier 
uh, for you to make improvements in poker and also for those issues to be less and less. So you can kind of do a little cross-training in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Um, poker is life and life is poker sort of thing. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, it's amazing the comparisons, even in terms of, as you say, dealing with a frustrating cold caller or making a decision about you know your insurance, what to buy and <laughs> sure. stuff. You can, you can make all these decisions and just sort of, as you say, the decision-making process yeah. is... It's pretty much the same across the board. Uh, there's another question. Sorry, but Jared, were you about to say? No, something? no, I was just gonna. I was just gonna add. You know, like if uh, a car dealer has has position on you. I mean, there's, yeah, there's that's all, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people, I love that the poker relating stories to this and that. Yeah. Like when people are trying to pick up girls and that, they're like, oh, you know, just you should have just checked there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all these things. Um, where are we? Guy uh, Grant on Twitter has said, uh, where are we? Questions. Um, is the mental game different in terms of online poker versus live poker? And what are the dif- what are the differences? The mental game as a whole is not different. The way it's applied is different. Uh, yeah. So online, you know, you're dealing with a lot less time with, de- with decision making. So on the one hand, that can lead players to handle mistakes a lot better because they don't have time to move on. Whereas in a live setting, that player may just sort of stew and steam over that mistake. Uh, and But they also may be able to you know, reflect on that a little bit more. So there may be more adjustments that they can make. Uh, there's There may be more evaluation they can take. So, so the, the time factor is a big component. Of course, you've got the, the frustration that can come just from playing a uh, fewer no, uh, number of hands per hour. Uh, on, uh, in a live setting versus online, um, but I think in general, you know, the other issues like motivation, confidence, uh, the zone, decision making, focus, mental endurance, those all apply equally. It's just again, sort of the application of it. So, if you're um, doing a warm up, what does your warm up look like when it's in person versus in a casino? You know, are you doing your warm up in the car? Are you doing it before you leave your house? You know, if you're doing it in, playing online and you're just going over to your desk. In the comfort of your home, uh, or for, or your poker office, wherever you're playing, you know that's where your, you know, uh, your warm up takes place. But the actual specifics of that warm up can be identical. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And also, I would add to that. I know people that play live and they are absolute gentlemen. They sit, they take a bad beat, mm. they're chilled out, they play. You put them in front of a computer and they take a bad beat and they're slammed mouses, keyboards, kicked, you know. Yeah. So I think maybe the isolation thing and how you how you act w- without other people sort of viewing you, um, maybe just it feels a bit like a computer game to some people and they get very, you know, <laughs> uptight clicking buttons. Well, that and they also feel more comfortable in, you know, without other people around. So they're willing to shout obscenities, you know, for getting sucked out when, when they're in a casino, they're, they're just not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, well, as ever, Jared, it has been uh, enlightening, stimulating, enthralling, <laughs> and I always feel more intelligent talking with you. And <laughs> and and when I come off the podcast as well. Um, so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. So all we need to do now is talk about the giveaway that we tease people with at the start. Um, Jared has kindly offered a copy of the Mental Game of Poker Two written by himself with Barry Carter. Um, and what we're going to do is if people can tweet in at oneouter.com, that's at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M, and just let us know the reasons, obviously within 140 characters, 
why you or your friend deserves the Metal Game of Poker 2 more. So we're looking for stories about, you know, why they're such big tilting fish or why they get really frustrated and they're always telling you bad beat stories and stuff. So anything like that and we'll pick a winner. We need to be able to grind more hands or improve focus or decision making. So, you know, more more of the the mental game of poker two topics, which are are more about the the performance side of things. Yeah. So like people that are professional poker players, but they play like an hour a day or something. Like I I know a couple of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're grinding from yeah. like a, you know whatever role and they're like oh play two hours and then stop and then they're oh i'm not i'm not making any money it's like you played two hours and then went out and played golf <laughs> you know so uh, yeah anything like that tweet them in and uh we will do our best to pick a winner from that and then send a book off to you so again jared absolute pleasure and uh good luck with the book and hopefully when the mental game of poker three comes out you can jump on and talk with me again absolutely no no plans for the third one yet but uh you never know when inspiration strikes good speaking with you barry thanks so much cheers mate take care